Good morning, everybody. I was just asking Justin if this is uh, the same music stand that falls apart every week. <laughs> and it is, so if it falls apart, bear with us. Um, I'm, really, uh, I'm really excited to be here with you all today, as I am every week. But I'm really excited to be introducing this new sermon series. Um, we're going to spend about three months in the book of 1 John, which is incredible to me because it's only like five chapters. So it's a really short book, but we're going to get to go really, really deep and really consider what John is, is saying to the, the people he's writing to and what, what he's saying to us today. And so as Justin said, today we're going to go through the introduction. We're going to go through the first four verses uh, in the book of 1 John. But before we do that, um, I want to I wanna, uh, build a little bit of context, a little bit of background to who wrote the letter um, why they wrote the letter, who they wrote the letter to, all of these things that'll paint a really good picture for us as we start to explore what uh, the content of the letter. And so let's start with who wrote the letter. Well, as you can probably guess, somebody named John wrote the book of 1 John. 1 John was the first of, of three epistles. An epistle is just a letter. It's the first of three letters that are attributed uh, to John as the, as the author, right? And who is John? John is one of the original 12 disciples. John is one of the people that Jesus called uh, when he started his ministry. John walked with Jesus for three years with the other disciples, was there at the cross when Jesus was dying, and, and was with Jesus uh, post-resurrection, he, he saw and experienced Jesus. So this is the John that wrote this letter. Uh, this is also the same John who wrote the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. So this is the same person, right? And that's important to understand because John is going to speak here with a lot of authority, and he's going to say a lot of really impactful things. Um, and knowing who he is and what his relationship was to Jesus really adds a lot of weight to what we're going to read. And so... Even among the disciples, John was unique. John had a unique relationship with Jesus. John says of himself that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a pretty bold thing to say, right? This isn't Jesus who said it. This is John who said, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but it just means that John had a close, intimate, deep relationship that was special even among the disciples, right? In, in the Gospels, there's an account of uh, John having dinner uh, with the disciples and with Jesus. And after dinner, he leans back and he rests his head on Jesus' chest. And he's just chilling with him. They're close. There's an intimate bond there. John was there at the cross. And from the cross, Jesus looks at John and says, will you take care of my mother when I'm no longer on the earth? Right? So there was a deep trust, a deep love, a deep relationship, a deep connection that Jesus, I mean, that Jesus and John had together. And so this is the person who's writing this letter, and it's important for us to have all of that context as the backdrop. So now let's talk about who he was writing the letter to and why he was writing the letter to them. So the answer to who is, it's not really clear. Um, John doesn't give uh, an introduction in, in a traditional sense of introductions. He doesn't say who exactly he's writing to, but he was either writing to a specific church or he was writing a letter to be passed around to a group of churches that were experiencing the same situation. So John is writing to address a situation, either to a specific church or to a group of churches. And what was the situation? Well, there were a group of, of Christians who had walked away from the faith. 
There were a group of people who had left the church because they no longer believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They no longer believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They no longer believed that uh, Jesus was God incarnate. They no longer believed that Jesus was the way to salvation. Jesus was the way to the Father. And so uh, there were groups of people leaving and preaching a different message that, that, sh- that taught how you can get to God without Jesus, right? And so that's the situation that John is writing to address. John is writing to remind the church of what they already know. He's writing to the people who've remained in the church, and he's writing to remind them of what they believe, and he wants to build their confidence in why they can believe this, and he wants to instruct them in how they should continue. And so the church here that he's writing to is at a really critical point. If you've been, if you've been a, a, a churchgoer, if you've been a believer for a, for a long time or for maybe even a little while, then you've probably experienced something similar to what this church was experiencing. You've probably had people close to you, people that you trust, people that you love, people that you care for, walk away from the faith, right? I know I've experienced this uh, many times throughout, throughout the years. This wasn't a, a, a group of people coming in and preaching a different message. These were the people that were next to them every week. These were the people whose houses they were in. They were having dinner together. They were breaking bread. These were their friends. These were their brothers and sisters in Christ. These were potentially their family members, right? And now they're leaving, preaching a different message, saying, actually, what we believe together isn't true. We believe this new thing now. And so if you can put yourself in those shoes, uh, if you've experienced, before, experienced this before, it's probably pretty easy. But if you haven't experienced it, put yourself in those shoes for a second and think about the confusion that would bring. Think about the, the turmoil that could create inside of somebody when somebody close to you leaves the faith, right? It, it, it can bring feelings of uh, emotions of anger, of sadness, of confusion, of sorrow, of all of these things, right? It can even cause you to doubt your own faith and question what you believe and question, well, are they actually right? And so this is the situation that John is writing to address. This is a very pivotal, critical moment in this church or in these churches. And so uh, with that as the backdrop of this letter, that's, that's the backdrop for the next three months, right? With that as the backdrop of this letter, let's jump into John's introduction and see what he's saying to, to, to the church and see what he's saying to us today. So we're going to start in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can learn your word together. We pray that you would speak to us today. We pray that you would teach us what you want us to learn today. We pray that uh, every word that I speak would be filled with your spirit from you, God. We bless you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So John writes this, uh, this introduction in a very poetic, very artistic way. And this is characteristic of John throughout the whole letter. John doesn't write in what we would call uh, linear thoughts, right? John doesn't say, if this is true, then that is true, then that is true, right? That's how, that's how uh, many of us would probably make an argument. But John does it in, in a very different way that can make it sometimes difficult to understand. John speaks in more of a, a circular pattern, right? So he starts with a thought, and then he moves on to a different thought, and then he moves on to a different thought, and then he circles back to the first thought. And he does this all throughout the letter. And so uh, to help us more clearly understand what... Uh, what John is trying to say in these first four verses, we're going to get some help from the, from the Tyndale commentary and reorganize these thoughts uh, a little bit. And if we were to do that, it would sound, the intro would sound something like this. We proclaim to you concerning the word of life that was from the beginning, which we have seen, heard, and touched, and the objects of our proclamation, our fellowship, and joy. And so John jumps in without any introduction. He skips the salutations. He skips the greeting. He skips the catching up. He doesn't let them know what he's been up to. You can sense the eagerness and the urgency in John as he starts this letter. He really needs to communicate this message to the believers in the church. And how does he start? Well, he starts by reminding them of what they believe. He reminds them of what they already know. He reminds them of why they're in the church in the first place. And he does this by telling them about the word of life. And this is a very specific way for John to, to talk about the message that they believed, right? And so let's, let's look into this. What does John mean by the word of life? Well, he gives us, he says four things about the word of life in these verses. And so let's go through them. He first says the word of life was manifested. The word of life was from the beginning. The word of life is eternal life. And the word of life was seen, heard, and touched. These are the things he says about the word of life. And so let's look at each of those individually. The word of life was manifested. What does manifested mean? It means publicly seen and known. So what John's saying here is the word of life, right? If I was to, the, the words that I'm speaking to you now, you can't touch them. You can hear them. You can't see them. And so he's saying he's seen, he heard, and he touched these things. And so he needs to qualify how he was able to do that. And he was able to do that because the word of life was manifested. It was publicly seen and known. And how was that? Well, it was incarnate, embodied in the life of Jesus. So John is drawing this parallel between the word of life and Jesus. Next, he says the word of life was from the beginning. So what does this mean? This can mean two things. It means either the beginning of, the, of Jesus' life at the point of the incarnation. It, it could mean the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Or he could be referring to the existence for all of eternity, the, 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 the everlasting, it being with God forever. Before what, what we consider time, before the time that we live in. But in either of these cases, again, he's drawing a direct relationship between the word of life and Jesus. 
He's calling people to to compare, to to equate the word of life with the life of Jesus. In fact, this echoes the introduction of, of the gospel of John, which he also wrote, where he starts the gospel saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's calling his readers back to the gospel. He's calling his readers to to make this direct connection between the word, the eternal word of life, and the life of Jesus. What else does he say? He says the word is eternal life. Again, he's just making this argument and building this connection. Eternal life in in this context is eternal fellowship with God, and that's embodied in the life of Jesus. And lastly, he says the word of life was seen, heard, and touched. Because the word was manifested, John and the disciples were able to interact with it. John is saying this was a historical event. This is something that happened. This isn't just something we heard. This isn't just something that uh, we were up on a mountain and got a vision. This isn't something that somebody got in a dream. He's saying this was a real thing that happened, and there were those of us who were there to experience and witness it. So in these first few verses, John jumps straight in. And he reminds them of the message that they believe. He reminds them that the word of life, the eternal life that was from the beginning is Jesus Christ. And he's doing this because the message that they've been hearing from this group that left the church is saying the opposite. It's saying you can get to God without Jesus. And John is saying, let me remind you, first and foremost, before we get into this letter, let me remind you that the only way to God, the only way to eternal life is Jesus Christ. And now John puts a lot of emphasis throughout these first few verses on what was seen, what was heard, what was touched, what was experienced. And why does he do this? Well, he does this because in the ancient world that John was a part of and in the Jewish culture that John lived in, A testimony was considered true if there were two or more witnesses to it, right? And so in our context today, if I came up here and told you something and said, it's true because I saw it, right, that might not hold a lot of weight to you. It might hold a little more weight if I said it's true because me and Mel were there, but it's probably not going to hold enough weight. You're going to say, well, where's some proof? Did you get a photo? Did you get a video? Is there any documentation? Is there any scientific evidence to back these things up, right? That's, that's, uh, those are the things we consider proof in our culture today. But in the culture John's writing to, there were no photos. There were no videos. There wasn't anything to look at. And so what they relied on was eyewitness testimony. And so when John is saying, we've seen these things, we've heard these things, we've touched these things, he's not saying, believe it because I said it. What he's actually saying is, I have proof that this is true. He's giving them the equivalent of, of proof. Uh, uh, this, was, this is that day's equivalent of proof. And so this isn't a light thing he's throwing around. He's saying, actually, these are the spiritual truths I'm sharing with you about the word of life, and you can believe them because they're true. They're true because I saw it. I heard it and I touched it, but not only me, there were many of us that saw it and heard it and touched it and are all saying the same thing. You can believe this witness, you can believe this testimony because there are multiple eyewitnesses attesting to it, right? And I think this is a really interesting uh, point for us to consider today, specifically in Zion Church, specifically in our context, 
Because many of us, myself included, have come up in, in cultures where questions are frowned upon, right? Too many questions get you in trouble. Too many questions are discouraged, sometimes even disciplined, right? And that can be in the home, but that can also be in the church, right? The, 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 the message is often preached in the sense of, well, I'm the spiritual authority, and I said this thing, and that should be enough for you to believe. And if you ask too many questions, you're ruffling too many feathers, but just like 2,000 years ago, today there are still many doctrines, many beliefs, many belief systems, many things that oppose the Christian faith that we hold to. And so I think it's important for us to look at how John approached this. John's aim in these first four verses is to build the believer's confidence in what they believe, in the message they believe. He's saying, I want you to be secure in the message that was preached to you. And he doesn't do this by only giving them spiritual truths, but he does this by grounding it in historical fact, in historical context. He does it by saying, you can believe these spiritual things because they happened. And that's not often the way we talk about our faith today. But what John is showing us is that we should be able to speak to the reality of our faith, the truth of our faith, the history of our faith, the context of our faith, in addition to the spiritual truth, the spiritual realities of our faith. Right? And I'm not saying we can explain these things away. I'm not saying that we can make God a logical thing that fits inside our perceptions because we can't because he's infinite and we're finite. And that's not what John was trying to do either. John gives these deep, uh, mysterious spiritual truths about the word of life, but then he grounds them in things that happened. And I think that's important for us to understand today. And I think that's an important challenge. And we'll talk about it a, a little further into the letter. So John starts this letter by saying, this is what you believed. This is why you can continue to believe it. This is why you can trust it. It's not just because we said so. It's because it happened and it's true and it's real. And so why is this important? Well, John says that he's proclaiming this to them so they can have fellowship. Fellowship with who? He says fellowship with us the apostles and, and the fellow believers, and also fellowship with God. The gospel creates fellowship with the church and fellow believers. The gospel, the message of Jesus, binds together all those who receive it. When we receive the message of Jesus Christ, it creates a new core. The depth of uh, the, the center of who we are should now be wrapped around the message of Jesus. And because of that, we have a commonality with all the other believers in this room, in our neighborhood, in our city, across the world. The gospel should create fellowship where it would be otherwise unlikely or maybe even impossible. Right? The gospel crosses socioeconomic backgrounds. It crosses cultural backgrounds. It crosses ethnic backgrounds. It crosses political backgrounds. The gospel creates this core connection that all of us have. And John is saying, I want you to continue to hold to this word of life because I want you to continue in fellowship with us. I want you to continue on in this relationship. 
And I love that Justin shared before I came up about uh, how we should be thinking about continuing fellowship, because that's exactly what John is saying here. He's saying that the, the gospel, this word of life message that we believe builds a deep fellowship that we couldn't get in any other way. And I want you to continue in this. Our faith is not meant to be personal only, but it's a communal, a communal faith. It's a faith to be lived out in community. And that's what John is reminding the church of. But more than that, John says the gospel, John knows that the gospel creates fellowship with God. And so this, these other, this faction that left the church is saying, we don't need Jesus to get to God. There is another way. There's a different way. There's a better way. And John knows that this isn't true. John walked with Jesus. John knows that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so John wants to guard them against this. John wants to make sure if what they're saying sounds good, let me reassure you that the ultimate end of that is disconnection from God. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. And the only way to have connection with God, which is the ultimate aim of the church, is the reason we're here today is because we want to be connected to God. And John's saying the only way to do that is to hold to the word of life, to hold to Jesus. That's the only way to get connection with God. That's the only way to fellowship with God. And so John is proclaiming this truth about the word of life to them so that they can have fellowship with the church, with the believers, and with God. Now, John uses a very specific word here uh, when he's talking about fellowship. And the word, this letter was written in Greek, and the word in the Greek is koinonia, right? What that means is not just personal relationship. It means personal relationship, but in this context, it means something further. It means a coming together, a partnership, a working together, a joining together for a specific goal. And what's that goal? What could John be referencing? John is saying, the way I'm proclaiming the truth to you, you should come alongside, you should come into fellowship with us and be proclaiming the truth also. And this is why it's important that they're confident in the word that they're proclaiming, because you can't proclaim a truth you're not confident of. If you don't really believe it, then you can't help somebody else understand it. If you don't really know it, you can't help somebody else know it. That's a difficult thing to do. And so John is building their confidence because he wants them to come alongside him and preach the gospel with them, preach the message of the word of life with them, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we are appropriately confident in what we believe and relationally connected to God and the church, then we can help others be connected to God as well. So when we are appropriately confident and relationally connected, we can help others be connected to God. And this is what John's calling us to do in this letter. This is, what, this is the fellowship that John is calling us to. And why should we do this? Why is John calling us to do this? 
Well, he gives us a very personal motivator here. John says in verse 4, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John says, I'm proclaiming these things to you so that my joy will be complete. What does he mean by that? Well, when I think about this, I think about, uh, I think about my own children, right? John is writing this letter in a very pastoral sense, in a very uh, pastoral way. He's shepherding these people. He cares for these people, and he loves these people. And so when I'm thinking about uh, how, how, how I can uh, explain this, I think about my daughters, right? I have three daughters. I have Two of them are, are six and eight, right? And there are things that I love to do. There are hobbies that I have. There are things I do that bring me great joy, right? I'm a photographer. Uh, I don't go anywhere without a camera. Photography makes me really happy. I enjoy doing it. It brings a, a big sense of fulfillment and purpose for me. And every now and then when we're leaving the house, I always have a camera on me. My kids know this. But every now and then they'll get to the door and they'll stop and they'll say, oh, dad, wait, let me go get my camera. Right, because of course they have like way too many cameras for a six and an eight-year-old to have because their dad's a photographer and I'm always trying to get them into it. I always want them to to catch the bug with me. But in these moments that they want to go and share in this with me, those are some of the most fulfilling moments I can experience. And so we're out and about going about our day and I'm taking photos of, of whatever we're passing by, and they're saying, oh, Dad, let me stop. Let me take a picture of this thing, and I'm seeing their eye develop, and I'm seeing them connect to this. And when we do this together, it brings a joy that I don't experience when I'm doing it alone, right? It's a joyful thing for me to do alone, but when I do it with them, when I see my children engaging in it with me, It adds this whole new element of joy that wouldn't be there otherwise. And this is what John is saying. John is saying, this is a good thing. I know this is a good thing to do. I know if you believe this, I know me proclaiming this to you is the right thing, right? God is is fulfilling John in, in in his purpose and in his mission. But John is saying, if you come alongside me, My joy will be greater. My joy will be more full. My joy will be complete. In fact, he says it explicitly in in 3 John, in the third letter that he wrote. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Leading others in truth, in in the truth, leads to great personal joy. I was thinking about how I've seen this play out in my own life, leading others in the truth. And I was reminded of, of, a, of a time when somebody very close to me, very dear to me, walked away from the faith. This person was uh, somebody I respected, somebody I looked up to in a lot of ways. This was actually the person who invited me back to church when I had stopped going. And so when they left the church, I I remember feeling all of the emotions that we talked about earlier. I remember feeling angry. I remember feeling abandoned. I remember feeling sad. I remember feeling confused. And I remember one day we were hanging out and we were uh, talking about nothing in particular. And then the the gospel came up. Our faith, my faith came up. 
And they were telling me how they just couldn't believe it anymore. They, they just couldn't in good conscience believe that this was actually true. And I remember we started talking about the things that have helped me be confident in my faith and the things that have made me appropriately convinced of what I believe, right? And I remember specifically, I shared with them how the idea that the disciples would have died for something they knew was not true just seemed illogical to me, right? If you don't know, many of the disciples that walked with Jesus, these were the disciples that were spreading the message of Jesus. Many of them were murdered. Many of them were martyred. They were killed. Bartholomew was, was, was murdered. James was, was beheaded. John, who wrote this letter, was sent to a, a secluded island to die alone. It's believed that Peter was, was actually crucified himself. And so they died, they died a gruesome deaths. They walked into their deaths, right? If, if the, the message of Jesus was a lie, if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then these are the people that would know it. Right? If anybody knew it, it was them because they were the ones spreading it. They were the ones saying, we saw him. Right? And the idea that, that, that these people would walk to their deaths knowingly holding to a lie just seemed more illogical to me than the alternative. Right? Anybody in their right mind would have at any point before death been like, my bad guys, I made it up. I'll stop now. I'm going to just be on my way. Right. And so I shared this with them because uh, when I when I had come across this bit of information, this way of thinking, it really made me feel more confident in what I believe. It made me feel more confident in the word of life. And when I was done sharing this at the end of the conversation, I remember what they said to me. And they said, when you talk about the Bible, it makes so much sense. And I remember the joy that brought me and it still brings me joy to this day. Now, that conversation didn't bring about any change. They didn't repent. They didn't return to the faith in that moment. In fact, they still haven't returned to the faith today, and this was years ago. But I can feel joy knowing that I helped them see the truth a little more clearly in that moment. And this is what John is inviting us into. John is saying, proclaim the word of life. Be convinced in the word of life so that you can experience this joy with me. And so as we close today, I think that our calling is twofold. I think there's two things we're being called to do as a church, as Zion Church today. And the first is to be appropriately confident in what you believe. And we have some resources in the sermon resource guide that are going to be posted on the app later that, that uh, if you don't know where to start, they're going to give you a good place to start. But remember that the faith we believe is grounded in historical truth. It's grounded in historical accuracy. And we should be able to speak to this well. How, do you, how, how can you help somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible understand the truth of the gospel? Right, I think that's the challenge for us today. First Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that you have. And so this is our call. We need to be ready to give an answer, but, but, but an answer in the way that people can hear and understand. 
And that's going to take study, and it's going to take prayer, and it's going to take reading, and it's going to take research. But this is what we're being called to do today. We don't have an eyewitness. We can't go to anybody who saw Jesus, right? That ship sailed a long time ago. But we're not left without resources. In fact, our resources have grown much richer over thousands of years. And so that's part of what, what, what I think we're, we're being called to today. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. And the second thing that I think we're being called to today is to share this with others. Become convinced of this yourself so that you can share the truth with others. Who in your life can you be spending more time with? Who in your life can you help understand the truth a little, a little more clearly? See the truth a little better. Walk in the truth a little more. This is what God is calling us to do today. As a church, as a community, together in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our faith is, an, is one that, that we can look back to, is one that has uh, historical roots, is one that can be verified, is one that has truth surrounding it. We pray that you would lead us in this. We pray that you would help us to become uh, appropriately convinced so that we can share your truth, help others walk in the truth, and experience the joy that you bring. In your name we pray, Jesus.